what, what I think food got me excited and still has me excited, Brittany, is this idea that it allows us all to be talking about and thinking about our mental health and our mental fitness. Our brain is made of food. All those nutrients that are in your food, the folate that's in your kale, the omega-3 fats in your oysters, your wild salmon, the magnesium that's in your beans and greens, all of those things end up in your brain. And, and your brain is highly regulated. It's not like if you dump on too much of this or that, it's going to mess up your brain. But you know, if you, if you think about where you want to orient your eating, I guess my, my pitch and my hope with this book and the idea of nutritional psychiatry is what better to think about than your most amazing asset, everything that is your, your creativity, your thoughts, your feelings, your uh, spirituality, that all, it all rests around your, your brain and your brain's health. And, and so it, it, it's, it's really connected intimately as I get into in the book through the foods we eat influencing the types of bacteria in our gut, that influencing a lot about our brain health and brain signaling and also the absorption and creation of some nutrients. There then is all of this correlational data looking at how certain traditional diets, or let's just say traditional diets in general, have more of these nutrients that we know are related to mental health and, and particularly depression and anxiety. Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from a clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. You're listening to episode 49. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. And if it's your first time here, so glad you're spending your time with us today. I just want to dive right into today's episode because I'm super excited about the conversation we're about to have on the relationship between nutrition and food and mental health. As you know, this is a conversation that I'm advocate about when it comes to wellness, when it comes to overall well-being, including our mental well-being. And I'm always looking to include voices that have expertise and clinical experience in this area. So today I have a special guest whose work I admire personally on my own journey, um, but also someone who I've come to consider a good friend, and that is Dr. Drew Ramsey. If you've followed along with me at all, you may have noticed that I've referenced his works many times in his books on my blog, on my Instagram, my book recommendations, you name it, because he really did begin this foundational journey for me on widening my perspective and understanding the relationship between nutrition and mental health and optimal brain functioning and cognitive functioning. And those are the things we're talking about today on this episode. We're talking about how what we're eating is carried over to our brain health and our cognition and our mood, as well as the types of foods that we want to, you know, have more of in our diet. To optimize our brain functioning, we talk about how we can kind of do better than this highly processed food industry that we've found ourselves sucked into that may not be the best way to be processing our food when it comes to our brain and bodies, but all coming from really a grace-based, shame-free place of where to begin this journey when it comes to eating for your mental health. And I knew it was just a matter of time before I had to get Dr. Ramsey on the podcast. 
Drew Ramsey is a psychiatrist, author, and farmer. He's a clear voice in the mental health conversation and one of psychiatry's leading proponents of using nutritional interventions. And he's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University of Physicians and Surgeons. He also founded the Brain Food Clinic in New York City, offering treatment and consultation for depression, anxiety, and emotional wellness concerns. His clinic incorporates evidence-based nutrition and integrative psychiatry treatments with psychotherapy, coaching, and responsible medication management. Using the latest in brain science, nutrition, and mental health research, and an array of delicious foods, the clinic helps people live joyful, fulfilled lives. Dr. Ramsey is a keynote speaker and conducts workshops nationally. His media work includes three recent TED Talks and the BBC documentary, Food on the Brain, with works and writings that have been featured by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Huffington Post, and NPR, which named him Kale Evangelist. He's a member of the Well and Good Wellness Council, the editorial board of Medscape Psychiatry, the advisory board of Men's Health, and the co-founder of, get this, National Kale Day. <laughs> Drew lives with his wife and two children in New York City and on their 127-acre organic farm in rural Indiana. As you can see, Dr. Ramsey is really a dynamic guy with a wealth of experience and information and expertise in this area. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Drew Ramsey on Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. Dr. Drew Ramsey, I am so glad to have you on the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Brittany. It's so nice to be with you. I'm actually, if people hear the clippity-clop behind me, I'm, I'm sitting at uh, in an equestrian barn is where I, is my improvisational podcast studio. And I'm really excited to speak with you today uh, and reconnect with your audience because we've spoken before and I feel like you've been one of my... I don't know, healthy Instagram accounts in terms of just following you over the pandemic. And I just really like your content. And so it's really nice to see you and, and be speaking with you again. That's so kind. Thank you so much. Yes, it's great to be speaking with you again. And I kind of wanted to make a connection here for kind of connect the dots for those who are just listening and just kind of hearing about you. So you are definitely one of the people who first kind of help get me started on my faith and mental wellness and uh, food journey and my nutritional journey. Um, and it kind of started some years ago when I was writing my first research paper on the relationship between diet and mental health. It was a small one, not as extensive as what you're doing, but at UCLA. And it first got me started into this idea um, when I was looking at the findings and implementing it into my own journey. And so I did get your book, The Happiness Diet with Dr. Tyler Graham, which I always recommend for people to also begin with reading because it's just very well articulated I think for the everyday person looking to start this journey and understand the relationship um, and so then I connected with you on Instagram and we've gotten to do a live together on Medscape and also talk about the intersection of faith and and mental health and so I'm so excited to dive into your new book Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety and talk a little bit more about that today. Well, thank you, Brittany, and it, um, it's really, I'm honored to hear that I, I've helped influence how you think about food and helped you in your journey, because I just love what you're doing and how you're connecting up, and and 
yes, the happiness diet was really my education. Tyler, actually, he's not a, a physician. Tyler's a writer and a journalist. And, and, and Tyler really taught me around how medicine had to change and mental health had to change in terms of how we were approaching our messaging and how we were engaging the public. And, and really, uh, he and I, through our research for that book, it really was my education in the modern food supply um, and, and in how, how you um, – uh, put something together that can really help uh, a reader uh, digest and think about why they should have food be it really at the forefront of how they're thinking about mental health and their mental wellness. So it's great to be back and be talking with you about that. And, and so nutritional psychiatry now is what we call this when I first started. So I, I came up with the idea for the happiness diet. This is probably like 2007 and 2008. At that point, I'm a really young physician right out of residency. I've moved from my farm in Southern Indiana uh, to, to medical school in, in Indiana where I'm from and then on to New York city where I trained at Columbia in adult psychiatry. And, and as I finished up my residency, I mean, my own personal life, I was a low fat vegetarian and really interested in this new research coming out about the omega three fats and interested in my own struggling mental health in a lot of ways of just being a resident and being in New York and, and, you know, trying to, um, you know, just, just lead as healthy as a life as I could while at the same time really enjoying all of what New York had to offer. And so, uh, these, I don't know, these moments, like, I don't know, omega-3 fats were really cool for brain health and everybody was starting to give fish oil pills for the first time. And I'm like, I don't need any fish. I wonder what the data is on fish. And you realize there is a little, and I kind of had made that connection because I think being trained in the Western model and, and I love Western medicine for, all, all of its, you know, for, for all of its beauty and all of its warts. I mean, I think Western medicine and, and our understanding of the brain and the body, it's just, you know, it, it gets a lot of flack these days, right? It's like, oh, boy, conventional medicine. But I, I'm a big fan. I mean, I think what conventional medicine does, it, it does well. And to me, the, the idea of supplements versus food kind of lost its appeal. And the idea of the daily multivitamin, which I'd, I'd taken as a young man, it just, it lost its appeal. And, um, and then as I looked at the data, um, I wasn't so impressed or convinced. But when I looked at the data about food, then, then, then I was very, very intrigued. And then that really over the past 10 years has, has emerged into this field called nutritional psychiatry. And I, I'm really grateful to, for the interest uh, that everyone has because I think it's a wonderful avenue for us to get into talking about mental health and expand the mental health conversation. Yeah, I love that. And it's kind of one of those things that once you learn about it, and once you're looking at the research, you can't unsee it. <laughs> like you just can't unsee it with the foods that you're eating in your everyday life. And you kind of mentioned that food is truly a form of medicine, and that what you eat and your brain's well-being will always be intimately connected. And, you know, put simply, your brain is made up of food. So for those who are newly learning all of this, can you clarify the connection between our gut and brain and how what we eat is literally relayed to our brain? For sure, Brittany. And, and that's really the focus of my new book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, is to not have this be something that I think people often wonder you know, how true could it be? Can, can, can what's at the end of my fork really impact my depression or my anxiety or my cognitive health? And so I've been really excited that the data and our clinical experience does back that up. And I think it also 
shows people uh, and I hope teaches people about the appropriate role of food because I also think a lot of folks have taken this message really too far and in some ways stigmatized mental health, right? Like if if you're having mental health problems, it must be because you're not eating right or if you're struggling with how you're eating and taking a medication, you should really go to yoga class and start eating more, you know, seafood. And and I've just been really humbled in my own journey and my own mental health and then in, in getting the real privilege to be a psychiatrist and to speak with so many people about their mental health. The real the real joy of being a clinician for me is the way that it, it humbles you and it puts you in your place all the time. That there is no one idea, there is no silver bullet, there's good alliance, there's good evidence-based treatments. And that's how we get people better. And that's how people get themselves better. And, and, and so food becomes a really intimate part of that. If you think about it, how do you get all those? We know the brain needs all these nutrients. It burns about 20% of everything you eat. Very high concentrations of things like omega-3 fatty acids, about 7% of the dry weight of your brain are these very long-chain fats. You, you make some of them out of plants, which is amazing of your body. But, but a lot of data has shown that eating them uh, eating more seafood, particularly during pregnancy, but, but also for people who are struggling with particularly mood disorders is where the data is, there seems to be some benefit. And, and so that's the kind of thing that then as a psychiatrist, I get excited about what, what I think food got me excited and still has me excited. Brittany is this idea that it allows us all to be talking about and thinking about our mental health and our mental fitness. The, the complex question you're asking and the simple answer is our brain is made of food. All those nutrients that are in your food, the folate that's in your kale, the omega-3 fats in your oysters, your wild salmon, the magnesium that's in your beans and greens, all of those things end up in your brain. And, and your brain is highly regulated. It's not like if you dump on too much of this or that, it's going to mess up your brain. But you know, if you, if you think about where you want to orient your eating, I guess my, my pitch and my hope with this book and the idea of nutritional psychiatry is what better to think about than your most amazing asset, everything that is, your, your creativity, your thoughts, your feelings, your uh, spirituality, that all, it all rests around your, your brain and your brain's health. And, and so it, it, it's, it's really connected intimately as I get into in the book through the foods we eat influencing the types of bacteria in our gut that influencing a lot about our brain health and brain signaling and also the absorption and creation of some nutrients. Um, there, there then is the, all of this correlational data looking at how certain traditional diets, or let's just say traditional diets in general, have more of these nutrients that we know are related to mental health and, and particularly depression and anxiety. Um, and then the, I guess the really exciting data and, and the part where I really want everyone I hope uh, looking at the book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, will kind of leave with this notion that the brain is growing, your brain is growing, your brain has the capacity to grow and change and strengthen, and that there are a lot of different levers you can pull. Right? Lots of different things influence brain health, exercise, uh, meaningful relationships and community, uh, uh, good sleep. But, but food is something you're doing every day. And we all have a lot, I would say at this point, we all have a lot of strange and somewhat neurotic beliefs about food. You know, I mean, it's like the lady, you know, other than like this thing's toxic or like this thing's amazing or like this thing's a superfood. And, and I think I'm, I don't know, as a, as a doctor, I've, I've been a psychiatrist for almost 20 years now. I, I guess I, I also hope that in terms of the connection between food and the brain, I hope, Brittany, that people also use that in a, maybe a new way, which they'll, they'll, they'll begin to... Um, take this data and transcend the current, very polarized, I would say often maybe misinformed 
um, notions of food and nourishment and, and, and the deeper nourishment that I think comes from the, the type of engagement I'm asking people for with their food. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. And that's one of the things that I do love about um, your books in general that you have written about this relationship is that you kind of take all, you take a very holistic approach, you know, which is very encouraging to hear because I think when a lot of people think of psychiatrists, they think of someone who's just about to write them off with some meds, (laughs) you know, or something of that sort. That's the kind of role I mean my colleagues have ended up in. I mean, yeah. I'm really blessed that our clinic and my practice has really allowed me to practice the way I want to practice. And so many people are in a, and I have an hour to meet a patient, or maybe half an hour, and then you get a 15 minute med visit. Right. And your job is to do meds, and 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 the therapist's job is to do the therapist, and uh, and you know, and I think most. I mean, all psychiatrists, actually, to to graduate from a psychiatry residency, you have to know at least five types of therapy, and only one of those is pharmacotherapy. So all of us, every psychiatrist in America is trained in multiple types of psychotherapy. Some of us practice it more than others. You know, I mean, certainly, but but yes, I think most people think about psychiatry as meds only. And, you know, and and I hope that changes and people begin to think of us as the doctors that really care about your emotional health and your brain health and, and, uh, and are rooting for you. I think that's the thing about psychiatrists. It's kind of, you know, like you can be doing all kinds of strange things, having really hard thoughts or, or things you've never told me about and anyone about. And you know, the thing that's kind of universally about true about psychiatrists is we're all really curious about that and want to help you with it. Absolutely. I have to admit, like in all of my psychological courses so far up to this point, nutrition really hasn't been brought up or mentioned. And so I'm actually, I actually am self-enrolling into some nutritional courses this summer just to take additionally because I'm understanding this intersection more and more. Um, and so I do hope that as in the, in the world of psychology and psychiatry and whatnot, that we do have people who are taking on this more holistic wellness approach to people's care. Because like you highlight in your book and so many times, I mean, the the integration is, is, is so essential in so many ways. Um, and, you know, we do have these trends that tell us don't eat this and don't eat that. And even just like, you know, there was this whole like stay away from eggs and stay away from fat. And then you learn, well, actually, there are elements of egg that are good for us and there are healthy fats. And you and Dr. Laura Lachance, a fellow psychiatrist and clinical researcher at the University of Toronto, actually came up with an antidepressant food scale. And so based on your findings, what are some examples of essential nutrients that help our brain fight off depression? and anxiety and what are some foods that we can find these nutrient sources in if you were to you know tell us like this is kind of the direction of nutrients and foods you really want to hone in on for your mental health today's episode is sponsored by better help Hey guys, we're going to get right back to the conversation because trust me, I know you'll want to hear the whole thing, but I quickly wanted to share with you this exciting new partnership I have with BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. One of the questions I get asked a lot are how you can go about starting therapy. A number of you are located around the country and even around the world. And as helpful as I often like to be, sometimes I find myself limited in being able to provide the one-on-one resources that you need. Well, I'm happy to say that one option I can share with you today is BetterHelp's online therapy and counseling services with licensed mental health professionals. 
Since I know a lot of you guys want more faith-based counseling as well, I'm even more excited to share that they also have another service called Faithful Counseling, which has licensed Christian therapists and counselors who are certified by their state, where you can receive licensed counseling using your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. So I use BetterHelp Therapy. I've been using it myself, and it's been super convenient, you know, between school, work, and really just having someone to check in with on a regular basis has been so important for my own mental health. So what happens is when you sign up, you'd be matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, and you can securely message your counselor anytime, any day, you know, day or night, and get replies within 24 to 48 hours. BetterHelp also has group in our sessions every week where you can learn in groups directly from licensed counselors on multiple topics like relationships and ways to overcome anxiety. Uh, I also found out that financial aid is available for those who qualify and you can apply for financial aid during the sign up process. Hello. Additionally, listeners of the Faith and Mental Wellness podcast like you get 10% off of their first month using my specific link in the show notes below. And like I said, I know a number of you are around the world. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you want to get started and get matched with a counselor within the next 24 hours, I have links to both BetterHelp and Faithful Counseling in the show notes. I should mention that it is not a crisis line, okay? If you are experiencing a crisis, I have a link to all the crisis lines by country in the show notes as well. Check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. For sure. Thank you, Brittany. That's a great question. And first, I just want to break that down to first talk about the AFS, the antidepressant food scale really came from a question. Laura and I were thinking about how can we train mental health clinicians about nutritional psychiatry. And and, and just because you were, you were talking about getting trained and, and getting training, we do have a, a e-course now with 10 hours of continuing education credit for clinicians in nutritional psychiatry. So folks want to check that out, that's just on my website, drewramseymd.com slash brain dash food. And, uh, and it, it just tries to really summarize all of the data. But as Laura and I were looking at that, we we're like, well, what foods are we going to tell mental health clinicians to, to prescribe? I, I think way of how do you execute that in your everyday life? And, and how do we create a set of rules like, like olive oil? Right? It just people are a lot of really confused eating vegetable oil, soybean oil, sunflower oil. Folks aren't quite sure what to use. Hey, it's a simple rule. Mostly use olive oil, right? That's what eating in the Mediterranean diet really can translate to in your house. And in terms of nutrients, we just did a little, I guess, kind of two-step dance. The first was what are the nutrients that are most involved in depression based on the evidence. And so we looked at all the epidemiological studies of individual nutrients, uh, all vitamins and minerals, and then also all clinical studies that pertain to this. So if you did a clinical study of, um, let's say, giving a, a B vitamin supplement or an iron supplement when you gave an antidepressant and you showed a positive outcome, that that indicated to us, boy, that, that nutrient has some special qualities there. And we found that there were 12 nutrients, things that probably don't surprise people, vitamin B12, folate, vitamin B9. We, we already knew that based on our kind of clinical protocols. You screen people for those things when they have depression. Um, omega-3 fats, but others like magnesium, and iron, or zinc, 
selenium. A lot of folks maybe haven't heard of those or thought about them in relationship to their brain health and mental health. And then the next step of our two-step dance was we said, and this is the most important part, which is not to get hung up on nutrients. It's to get hung up on food. And that's what all my work really is about, is is not to get you finding that magnesium supplement that is going to help you beat depression, but thinking about what are the foods that you love. That's the most important part for me as a psychiatrist, because I really have no interest in shaming people or creating fear or having you like, you know, choke down salmon you hate. That's that's I don't know. That's for other wellness experts. I don't have any interest in that. <laughs> I want you to eat foods you love. And 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 so what's important is in what we um, found were the food categories. So if you look at the top 10 plants on the antidepressant food scale, they're leafy greens and they're mostly cruciferous vegetables, leafy greens and rainbow vegetables, colorful plants. When you look at the animals, and again, a lot of nutrient profiling systems, which is what we ended up creating, nutrient profiling systems like the Andy or, or the um, power, uh, power Foods rating of uh, fruits and vegetables, they tend not to rank animals or seafood because these tend to have more uh, calories. And most people do end up eating a lot of meat and a lot of and, and some seafood. And so we also wanted to include those. And what we found was in the top five are mussels, clams, and oysters. I think it just from a food category standpoint, you see lots of seafood. You see fish row. Uh, you uh, see wild meat. And, and so this kind of directs us to how we practice in our clinic and directs us to how I think about food and how I present it in the book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. And there's a six-week plan in the book that really revolves around these key food categories. So it doesn't become a question which, I don't know, I've been talking about food and mental health for a while now that, that you know, I don't want the question to be like, should you eat red meat or not? It's more of what is your relationship with meat like? What are your values? Yeah. And then instead of me prescribing like, oh, like, you know, uh, the Julius Caesar of brain food, right? Thumbs up or thumbs down, right? No. <laughs> for really um, to help motivate you, and I would even say challenge you as an eater, to think about those things. Um, I just talked to a, a influential guy who's really only interested in efficiency. He, he, he said to me, you know, I, I don't really care at all where my food comes from or who grows it, or I don't really understand why that matters. And, you know, I think, uh, and that gets me really curious. How does he value food? And what does that lead to for him? Um, I think it's probably the clinician in me, Brittany, of just what I'm looking at with somebody is trying to get more of these nutrients and more of a relationship to joyfulness and self-nourishment going. Uh, that's really where I see my uh, my role as, as, a, as a, somebody taking care of mental health. Yeah, I love that so much because something that I've been talking about a lot is kind of this idea of anti-diet and more uh, intuitive eating, um, figuring mm -hmm. out what works for you. That sounds like something that is much more sustainable, um, as far as, okay, what do you like to eat? What's kind of within your, um, accessibility and how can we work these things into a way that works for you? It just feels much more natural, like something someone can actually implement in their lifestyle instead of trying to meet all these requirements and failing and shaming themselves and then giving up, you know, like you said, you buy all the salmon or the avocado or whatever it is. And then when the day comes, you're like, I really don't know what to do with this stuff and I really don't like it. <laughs> and so then you revert back to, you know, whatever the highly processed foods or whatever. Um, 
So I really love that you're saying that and it's not an illegalistic form because when we think about mental health, it's not just about what you're eating, but like you said, it's about also your relationship with food, your relationship with your body as well. Um, and, and having yeah. a joyful and pleasurable experience with food that also you know, energizes you and helps you feel alive and feel better and clear mentally and physically. Yes, that 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 is exactly it. And I think I really wanted to vote. On, I think a lot of us in wellness are wanting to vote on the side of this much more realistic and healthy and sustainable notion of food. Uh, I think that's what works. Intuitive eating really is. Uh, we have a number of uh, folks working in our clinic, and and, and Samantha Elkreef is a, a wonderful therapist, and really, uh, she actually kind of owns one of the chapters of the book in a certain way, which is around. Um, how eaters can get into a stance of more confidence and more empowerment. Because part of what you're talking about is this notion that you know, that you, whoever you are listening, you're hearing this somehow, the yeah. universe brought us to this moment, and, and that, that you know a lot. You, I bet know all the brain foods I'm going to recommend. Uh, maybe a couple will surprise you, but uh, I don't think a lot of them will. You know the challenges in front of you, the foods that you're struggling with, or the foods that are really important to you. Yeah, like, pasta is really important to me. I, I can feed a brain some some mean nutrient dense meal with a whole whole lot of pasta, and and for me that that was one of my challenges because I'm not I don't know I appreciate the whole anti carb anti you know I, I get that I, I get why that is I appreciate that science but just not it's not going to do it's like dumplings. You know, it's just, I'm just not going to get rid of that in my diet. I just like dumplings too much, right? I like I like all kinds of different dumplings and all kinds of different cultures, and and so for me, you know, I have my own challenges, um, and I've really watched my diet shift and change from being you know a, a low fat vegetarian to a guy experimenting with seafood to a guy now who eats all types of seafoods, but also contends with feeding a family. I've got uh, we have two wonderful kids and. And you can talk oysters all day long. Uh, you know, my, my kids ate some oysters when they were young, but that's not, you know, that's not a regular part of their diet now, but salmon burgers are, and yeah, and, and kale chips are, and there's a variety of foods that, that, you know, it's been really exciting to figure out how to incorporate them or how to replace them or, or just how to be a good parent and understand that, you know, not every single bite and every single meal it's going to be the most amazing, nutrient-dense, brain-growth-promoting thing. It's going to be a meal. And what's important is for us to give thanks for this food when we have it. And remember, a lot of people don't. And um, and eat it with, uh, a, a, I think, a sense of calm and nourishment and presence and connection. So. I think we all just took a collective deep sigh of relief. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for reiterating that. And I actually want to go back to something that you said that hasn't been talked about on this podcast in regards to food and mental health and also something that you touch on uh, in Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety as well as uh, the Happiness Diet. And that is the uh, changing food landscape and its effect on our modern day mental health and how much the way we process food today could potentially be contributing 
to some of the mental health conditions that we're seeing. And I just say potentially contributing um, uh, because I'll let you clarify that a little bit more. But this is something that um, I know that you were raised where you were, you know, I believe in New York and then you guys were back on a farm in Indiana and you got to really interact with food and the soil and you are today. Um, And so it seems like you have a really great passion and well-explained way of sharing even that food processing aspect when it comes to what we're eating um, today? Yeah, it's a really complex and interesting question. What should humans eat? We, we know what humans have eaten, and, and I think that there are a lot of health benefits as people cut out processed food. There, there's also, I think, a question as we have a lot of obesity and diabetes and, and a lot of depression and anxiety these these ways we've linked physical health to food changes that we haven't really linked mental health to food changes. And I like how you say like probably or possibly linked. I think that's being responsible. There are lots of people out there who are great, perfect eaters who have mindfulness and exercise every day and they still get depression or panic disorder or bipolar disorder or any of these things. That said, there's been a strong data signal and what most people are eating is certainly making them sick. And it's hard then to argue without, uh, well, it's hard then with the correlations between uh, obesity and depression and diabetes and depression and dementia to not implicate our mental health, particularly as depression and anxiety. I mean, depression in particular is the most disabling illness worldwide. And what we lose more, if you want to measure it in dollars, which is not really, I'd like to measure it much more in terms of happiness, but if you want to measured in terms of dollars, we lose more money worldwide to depression any in the United States than any other illness. And that was before the pandemic. But to your question of what happened to food was we got interested in a number of ideas. We got interested in germ theory and this idea that bacteria is bad and if we process food, it's going to last longer. We got interested in, in, in getting rid of hunger, and, and which, which to us means shelf-stable back then. We got really interested in hydrogenating cottonseed oil. And this is where trans fats came from. We, we tell this story in, in the happiness diet. And certainly it's been interesting over the last decade to see, I guess, scary as well as interesting trans fats, highly correlated with depression risk, greatly increasing depression risk. I'm not going to remember the exact number, but I'm going to think it's 67% increased risk for people who eat a lot of trans fats, which really means processed foods. So this, the first time we started doing that in our food supply was 1911, 1912. We got interested in vitamins and minerals because we have to remember the first time we identified and isolated and said, wow, this is a vitamin that you need was thiamine. And that was 1912. So there are all these changes happened in 1912. It's really interesting here. We we hydrogenate cottonseed oil. Edward Kaiser comes across from a German biochemist and he teaches Procter and Gamble how they can heat up leftover cottonseed oil from the cotton industry with a little metal catalyst and make Crisco, which is basically trans fats. We get away from animal fats in part because they're stinky. We were back then making candles from, you know, beef tallow and pork fat and and this idea of of cleanliness and hygiene and shelf stable and modern modernity that that really became how we began to value food. And from that, we made margarine and breakfast cereal and got really interested in fast food and got interested in other values like convenience that, you know, who, who, I mean, hey, I'm, I'm like the other night, it's like, let's order in Domino's. We put a lot of veggies on it, but it's like, as a parent, <laughs> sometimes you do. It's just like, 
I don't know. I'm not going to say that anymore like a shame, but that's just like. It's better to fuel yourself than not at all. Sometimes that's a great choice for me. There's a way to portion control that. There's a way to put more plants on that. There's a way to put, you know, even seafood on that. I mean, that can be, (laughs) that can be the beginning of a great meal. So, uh, um, but that said, that type of access to calories, to sugar and to fat had never, has never happened before. And that's never happened before in, in terms historically of the last 50 years of a milieu where we're saying, Hey, you shouldn't eat these things. You don't really know what they are. Cholesterol. It's a scary, evil thing. Don't eat it. Bad for you. Causes people to have a heart attack. Teddy Roosevelt, you love him, right? He had a heart attack because of cholesterol. That and saturated fat. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. Don't eat meat. Don't eat cheese. Don't eat eggs. They all cause heart disease. That's all you need to know about nutrition. And then what's missed in that is then what you should eat. And 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 so we've had. Uh, when we think about how food changes and then why processing food is bad for it, just quickly to your question, is one, you leave it up to man, not God. And I originally heard that uh, idea or quote from Mark Hyman, so I just want to trivia him, but he, he does this great, eat the food that God made, not the food that man made. And all of these values begin to influence how we eat. And we really lose sight of some things that I, I, I think are important, like who grew your food, um, the gratitude you should have for it, maybe even trying to grow a little bit of yourself. I mean, probably the most spiritual moment for me or the real sign of things being out there bigger and greater and, and more complex than I might ever understand is when I take a little tiny speck of a seed and I put it in the dirt with my kids. And four days later, there's like a little tiny green leaf. And four weeks later, we're either eating the kale or watching the mushroom, or watching the tomatoes start to, to start to flower and, 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 and then a few months later, we're just eating all this delicious food from a garden. And all we've done is is water it and tend to it daily. And, and certainly during the pandemic, it was the first time I was I was always I grew up on a farm uh, and, and, and then left the farm for for school really when I was 16. But during uh, uh, the pandemic it was the first time I've been on the farm. I was on the farm every day for about 10 months. So every sunrise, I, I watched it come up on our farm and every sunset I watched it go down and and, and got a, a sense of the rhythm of, of both the, the land and the nature, got a real sense of my own. I, I mean, it's just, it's such a grounding, but also humbling place. Uh, I remember sometimes I, you know, I, I, I'm not the most early on time person, let's just say. I'm trying, I'm a psychiatrist, so you gotta start on time, because if you don't, it means something. So I mostly start on time, let's say, but... It's not exactly my top skill set. <laughs> so I, I thought this year, you know, I was really going to be prepared. I got all the dirt ready and I got everything ready and I got all the plants things and, and all the plants and I got everything in early. And and you realize that's really when you're farming that, that that's, you know, that's how the rest of the world works. Mm-hmm. But that that's not how nature works. Your question around why, why is that food maybe better than processed food? And I think one it's made of a set of nutrients and it's also a set of phytonutrients and also your body was uh, made to run on that food. And, and and so with processed food, it just presents your body with stuff that it's never done. It's never slurped a big, you know, 16 ounce uh, sugar water and it loves it because it's that's a safe calories your body says your brain and body say this is the smartest thing you've done all day. So <laughs> That was freaking brilliant because we're gonna we're gonna store that as a little fat for any time you for whatever dumb reason decides to not eat, and then your brain's gonna have plenty of fuel. 
and and ear, body, and brain high five each other, and and that's one of the reason you know that food it gets presented as addictive, and I, I I think that's probably pushing it a little bit. I think that disempowers people, you know, because it kind of makes it sound like oh, it's so hard to quit coffee, so hard to quit smoking, you know, they're addictive. It's like, you know, it's like millions of people stop eating that stuff and stop smoking and stop engaging in addictive behavior. It, it's it's something you decide to do and then you do. A sugar is not going to make you go like raid the 7-Eleven and steal Snickers bars. And <laughs> I just appreciate people crave it and have powerful cravings on your mind. And that's really a good sign. If you're listening to me and you have that, that really means something is up. And it's a wonderful signal your body's sending you that something about the way that you're eating, the way you're living, the way that you're kind of uh, running your nutrition program, it ain't, it's not working. And, and so a lot of times when people have symptoms, you know, it, it, I don't mean to belittle uh, how painful and, and how frustrating they can be, but I always see them really as opportunities. I mean, you have to in my, in my trade, that it's an opportunity for you to understand something more. And so if you are having sugar cravings, it's a, it's a great indication that there's some really exciting areas you're going to be able to make improvement. One, as Brittany mentioned earlier, is, is working on your microbiome. And one of the reasons that our body and brain crave things is the little bugs down there are like, more sugar. <laughs> and especially if you're used to see, feeding them a lot of that stuff, they're used to it. They're like, we got horses in the barn. You walk by, it's like, yeah, they, they act like they like you, but they're mainly like, what's in the pockets? What's in the pocket? You got treats in those pockets? And and I think you know the microbiome is a little bit the same way. And so it's especially, I think, important as people are thinking of adding in a lot of the foods we recommend in Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, a lot more plants and more seafood and, and more fiber, which is all the data, all based on the data showing that's really the way you support a diverse and healthy microbiome, that, that you, you do it gently and slowly. Back back when I was the kale king, uh, you know, 10 years ago, back in the heyday of kale, I had I met a lot of folks at talks where they'd come up and they'd like they'd have this look. It was like basically the look of like you poison not not poison but like I ate a giant kale salad and and I want to come and tell you how uncomfortable that was for me because uh, and so I heard that story a lot and, and my sense was it's where again people kind of get carried away with something yeah as opposed to adding in a little bit of kale or seeing if you like it or sautéing it. Um, you end up with a giant, giant bowl of raw kale in front of you, which, you know, if you haven't gotten used to that, it's going to just lead to a lot of gas. Yeah. And I think that's really what it comes down to. I'm learning is just continuing to experiment with your food, continuing to see what you like, add in something here, add in something there, like you said, because at first you just don't really know maybe what to do with these ingredients or these things that you haven't traditionally had in your diet um or haven't had growing up you know i I was raised as a mcdonald's kid (laughs) so i I appreciate that and i think i have a lot of empathy for that i was a really picky eater as a kid i didn't eat pie i was like that's disgusting i mean that's how picky i was (laughs) i didn't eat any seafood yeah um I, i i really um had strong tastes and preferences and so i i appreciate that and i appreciate trying new things is hard I also think for me, it's evolved into one of the great joys of life. Yeah. That as I've kind of mellowed out about my palate, as I've allowed it to expand, as I've 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 kind of gotten to a very zen spot about really being able to try anything, um, and and trying things multiple times, it's really been a delight to me how much I haven't known about how some foods for the first time just 
uh, I, I don't know. It's like this idea they've been there the whole time and you never right. ever really knew about them. Like like cacao beans, you know. Like I loved our chocolate, but I never had a cacao bean habit or oysters. You know, now now like one of the pieces of essential equipment I recommend is an oyster shucker and and getting some oysters and you know having three or four or five or six is is an appetizer every now and then. Just as a really you know doesn't have to be that fancy. I mean they're a kind of universal human food around the world. It's really interesting, the oyster. Um, but in the book, uh, because it really comes down to where the rubber hits the road, right? Are there foods that can really improve your mental health? Can they help you with depression and anxiety? And what are they? And so in this book, we created a list of the power players. And the power players are foods, they're, they're kind of all stars of each category. And so seafood, right? Wild salmon and anchovies, uh, uh, and bivalves. Really, they stand out as foods that you should work on. Anchovies, right? That's the bad joke, like, aha, bad pizza. But anchovies are an incredible way for you to add things like B12 and calcium and launching to make a three fats to your diet that are really low in mercury, really sustainable with these little tiny fish. Um, or kefir, a fermented dairy that you know, people are worried, like, which probiotic should I take? Kefir has more colony-forming units than any probiotic on the market. I love it's, throwing it in a smoothie for, as a base. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Right? It's it, it, it's it's tart. It doesn't have that, like, big, chunky yogurt feel. Right. Um, it, it I really like it with the smoothies. The Power Player, some of the other ones, just because I want everybody listening to hear these, and, and is to think about leafy greens. And sure kale's on my list, but what are the leafy greens that you love? Is it What are the rainbow vegetables you love and rainbow fruits? And how can you get more of those into your diet this week? How can you do more of it today? And, and, and not that there aren't barriers, but as a psychiatrist, I really... I think about barriers as just those challenges of like, all right, what well, you're in a food desert. Hey, I've experienced that. I'm in a food desert. There are no grocery stores that you can walk to. It's 20 minutes away to drive. So where do you find grass-fed meat? Well, I found it from my neighbor. We bought a quarter of a cow. We actually it ate a lot of our hay. That really felt wonderful to be part of the cycle of that animal's nourishment and life. And I think it ended up being about $3 a pound in total for well over 100 pounds of meat. And what's also interesting about that experience for me, this is when I was getting back into eating meat again, was how it taught me all these things I didn't know about meat. Like I'd never made a beef shank stew in a slow cooker ever Ever in my my life. life. And and I didn't know about about the shank. This really inexpensive, it's a cross section of a, what's interesting about a shank is you get a little bone marrow, great for a broth, right? Bone broth is big now. Well, getting some marrow in there, it's really one of the most nutrient dense parts of an animal. Um, you get that kind of bone and meat cooking down slowly and it just suddenly then I, then I would see it in the butcher's case. Well, there's a shank. And, um, you know, what do you do with, um, all of these big, bigger cuts and you start, you know, start learning about slow cooking and braising and, and, and having meat be not the focus like a steak or a burger, but really part of the, the, I don't know, milieu of vegetables and herbs. And really, I think that's the other way that, that, that. I don't know, I've been really influenced and blessed to have so much farm living is just what it's like when you just have it there. So we have this little tiny um, greenhouse at our farm where my mom keeps, uh, she just tends some lots of kale plants. We all have some baby kale on hand and some other things, tomatoes and other herbs, oregano, rosemary, and just kind of keep them alive all the time. And it's so interesting when you just walk a few feet and clip that stuff and, and, and I really encourage anybody with a window can do this. I mean, it's sort of funny that we all think like this is farm living. It's like actually all those plants I just mentioned, I also grew in New York in our apartment where you just 
you add it in and, and sure there's the nutrient part of it, right? All, all those vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients, but also there's just the, to me, the spiritual part of it, of, of being with that plant, of, 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 of clipping it, of, um, all of the, the real fresh kind of flavors and aroma that come with those herbs. So, you know, those, I, I guess I'm, we've gone off about your question of what, why natural food matters. And I think maybe to sum up, I think one, it's better for our gut. It's better for our overall physical health. That's better for our mental health. Like two, you get more nutrients when you eat diverse foods. And I, and I know maybe people in the supplement world will argue that, but I, I'm just going to say for this podcast, I think I'm right <laughs> because, um, getting more, you know, that's, yeah, that, that, that's not exactly always good. Right? Getting more iron, you know, once you get so much iron and heme iron, it becomes toxic. It's a, it's an oxidant. I mean, that's why we take all these antioxidants. I, I just think food wins in all ways. I also like foods because we're here talking about spirituality in ways of the way that it connects us up. It connects us to something bigger than ourselves, whether that's the miracle of photosynthesis in the plant or the miracle of how a farm operates or yeah. that yeah. you get food. I mean, what, what a miracle. What was, I mean, uh, that whole life cycle. when was the last time you were scared about your food supply? And I, I don't mean, I'm sure there are people who have been, but so many of us are blessed with food security. Yeah. And I think, uh, being, uh, attentive to that and grateful for that and aware of that. Um, I think that's the way, you know, there's so much buzz now and talk about like oh, cutting out all meat is the way to like really decrease, uh, the environmental impact of your diet it's great to be aware about the environmental impact of your diet. But I think the number one thing to be aware of is how both processing food and monocultures are really the primary drivers of the environmental problem. So when you swap out hamburger or grass-fed burger for impossible burger, you're really siding with the processed food industry. I guess maybe I'm born of a stance and a credo that, that I don't like fake things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really like imitation things. If you're going to eat a hamburger and a hot dog, eat a hamburger and a hot dog. Eat a good, healthy one. <laughs> like you said, it comes down to your value system. And really like does. that's going to differ for everyone and should definitely, I think, be respected in the conversation because you, you hear other people's values and you're like, okay, I get that. I get that. I get that. And for some people, different values are priority. So it's like, yeah, like if you have that value system where it's like, I want to eat the real food and all of the full nutrients that come with it that are meant for, for our bodies and that our bodies thrive off of, then that makes total sense. <laughs> um, right, I think it's a problem when people demonize. Yeah. Yeah. I think if for another sense, you don't want to be involved in animal cruelty or you're, you know, rightly aware that um, humans are destroying the seas and the oceans. I, you know, I think that I've really worked hard to understand my biases. Right. And, and as best I can. And to, to try and encourage us all to, to identify those mm -hmm. and, and in some ways understand more of where they come from. Yeah. I mean, I, I think certainly for me, maybe that has to do with my own journey of just the kind of wake up call of being a low fat vegetarian and it not working at all for me, being a sleepy, puffy, irritable, moody guy. You know, I, I would say I still can be all of those things at times, but really <laughs> not, not, not nearly to the extent that I, I don't have sleep attacks in the way right. that I did. That said, um, 
the the main point of the book is to really help people connect their food to brain health and mental health to help uh, uh, we have a chapter called eater heal thyself and and that really is around looking at a set of questions based on what we talk to people about in our clinic and, and thinking about your values, thinking about the way these foods work for you, thinking about what doesn't work and, and what could work and alternatives and to really encourage people uh, to get off the merry-go-round and roller coaster of processed food. And, and in some ways the merry-go-round and, and the roller coaster of uh, diet advice and, and, and to really think in a simple way about, the food categories that best feed your mental health. Yeah, I love that you kind of in that chapter, which I, I did read, you do kind of guide people through their own values and their own relationship with food to kind of come to a conclusion of what is going to be more, most sustainable for them, most pleasurable for them and most aligned with their convictions. And you do mention that this isn't a diet book. It's not some kind of cure-all that will alleviate all other needs for interventions like talk therapy or antidepressant medication, um, that it really is kind of supplementary to your journey to help get you on the best path for eating for your mental health. So I appreciate that so much. I think it's an important, uh, thank you for that, Brittany. First of all, I really do. Tr I, I did try and, and do try to, to, um, put nutrition in a responsible and evidence-based place. And, and I think that, uh, so many people with depression have been sold a false bill of goods over the years of right. either this supplement or this diet plan or try keto. And, and, and also many people have benefited from shifting their diet. And I think the main thing I wanted to do is to try and summarize uh, what the evidence says, the way to apply that in, in your day to day life, which I feel we have good insight because we've been doing this as long as anybody in the business in terms of nutritional psychiatry and, and, um, and talking with patients about food in a mental health clinical setting. Um, and, um, but then also I think to, I don't know, to, 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 uh, also provide the balance stance. I mean, I prescribe medications. I do a lot of psychotherapy. I love psychotherapy. I've been in a lot of psychotherapy. I love being in psychotherapy. I mean, I just, I think the human mind is <laughs> yeah. just, uh, an endless and fascinating place to explore. And so, Certainly, I don't want people to think that all people who, you know, get when they come to see us in our clinic is is a prescription for diet. I mean, that's just a, a part of what we do. But we do really believe it is a vital and important and, and overlooked part around mental health and, and, and another set of motivations that people can have uh, and another set of guidelines for really how to best nourish themselves. I completely agree. And I think that what you're doing is so empowering as far as people feeling like there is something that they can do practically in control of their own lives to help their brain and bodies. I do think mental health is really focused on and will be focused on how do we better empower people? Because we know at the end of the day, it, it, it's it, the more we can be preventative. And I think that's also where uh, food has such a powerful role. I mean, the data in the most recent meta-analysis showed about an 18% reduction in depression risk when you have a healthier dietary pattern. It's uh, you look at the population. So, I mean, let's say that 10 or 20% of our depression burden could be improved by diet. And let's say maybe we could improve another 10% if we got everybody moving. And wow, between those two interventions, let's say we had 30% less depression. 
I mean, that, that would be so amazing for our health system, for, for, first of all, for people, just all those folks who aren't struggling with that disorder. And, and so that's where, I, again, I think nutritional psychiatry is really going to help psychiatry step into the public in a way and, and, and speak about the empowering science that we know in terms of how to help people uh, live a lifestyle that uh, both decreases the risk of, of struggling with their mental health, but also when you do, because I think most people, at least based on the statistics, or a lot of people will, that you have a set of tools because we're in the midst of being really anxious or in the midst of being really depressed. Those aren't oftentimes where people are eating the best or taking care of themselves the best. And I, and I, I think the new information about how lifestyle relates to our mental health is really going to help empower folks and, and, and to 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 keep with those plans because they work. At least that's what I see with folks who are, I think, really running strong mental fitness games. It's you know not so much that they're always feeling great. It's then when they're not feeling well, they still have a routine that gives them nourishment, pleasure, um, and and then as the ship kind of writes, um, one it, it writes a little more quickly, but but two they're they're settled back into something that. They know and, and have that feeling of having kind of transcended through some bumpy waters with a plan that worked for them. Yes, I love this. I, I re- I'm going to actually close on this in- very encouraging note. <laughs> um, I love closing on just the hope we have for people's resilience and um, ability to grow and to up in all these areas to really help themselves heal themselves. Um, And for those who want to follow more of the work that you're doing or who want to grab the book, which I definitely 100% think you should because it's such a dynamic conversation and really kind of has all the literature on this in a way that is digestible for the everyday person in his book. Where can they find you? Where can they grab the book? We want all the details. Well, thank you, Brittany. And first of all, thanks to everyone for listening uh, to this point. And, and Brittany, thank you so much for, for having another really wonderful conversation. I'm looking forward to meeting someday and, and yes. having more of these over the years. And so for anyone who's interested in this, first, I just hope you hear my encouragement, whether you buy my book or not, to really take care and prioritize your mental health and mental fitness. I'm Drew Ramsey, MD. I'm, I'm super easy to find. I'm DrewRamseyMD.com on the internet, but also DrewRamseyMD on uh, Instagram and Facebook is where I'm most active. We have an e-course, Eat to Be Depression, but my new book is, is what I really hope you'll check out. Um, all orders are appreciated, especially orders from, from local bookstores or books stores right now that are suffering from the pandemic you can order from them just as you can from from other places um and so i'm hoping that the book can help also support local bookstores which are really struggling um and please check it out we also have some some really wonderful incentives on the website and and a weekly newsletter you can sign up for um, as well as our clinician training which i mentioned earlier for just anybody who's a a coach or a pastor or you end up talking to people about their mental health I think being able to just ask people about what they're eating and maybe incorporate that in the um, in the counsel you're giving them I think it, it, it just it helps it adds a deeper layer and it also works and so I hope you'll think about checking out the, the course and um, most importantly I hope tonight or this afternoon or whenever it is your next meal after this podcast I hope you'll look at your plate and I hope you'll think about it is, is this stuff that's jiggering my biology to put my brain in brain grow mode 
and make more connections, make more brain cells, to fight inflammation, to feed my microbiome. These are really the central principles of eating to beat depression and anxiety. And if you have any questions about those and the simple ways to apply those principles in your everyday eating to feed your brain, I hope you'll check out the book. And Brittany, thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Yes, Dr. Ramsey has a ton of resources. Let me tell you, I have your cookbook as well, which we didn't even mention. So yes, he has a ton of resources and I'm so glad. Again, thank you so much for coming here. Also, just someone who really honors and admires your work as something that also helped me get started on my own journey. Um, And thanks guys for listening. Until next time.